We're coming into a very special season of the year with the Feast of Tabernacles ahead of us and the other holy days. So we'll talk a little bit about that this afternoon. Today, there are an estimated 4,200 different religions in the world. 4,200 religions. And Christianity is just one of them. And if you look at all of what is called Christian, it's certainly the largest religion in the world. But according to the Center for the Study of Global Christianity, there are approximately 41,000 Christian denominations. And out of those 41,000, we all landed here. It's uh, rather daunting to think about that. Of course, it's explained by the 41,000 different opinions of what the Bible says, that each has their own set of doctrines, I suppose, one way or the other. And deciding which religion or which denomination is the right one, of course, can be very challenging. And for many of us, maybe we grew up in the church, it wasn't uh, a big difficulty as we prove these things to ourselves. But for many of us, uh, we had to decide, a lot, make, a, make a lot of decisions in order to come to that, to, to accepting the teachings of the Church of God and the living Church of God. Now, proving the Bible, if one proves the Bible, and we do admonish uh, and advise all of our listeners and all of our readers and ourselves to make sure that we have proven the Bible to be the inspired and revealed word of God, then one would be directed toward Christianity. Let's turn over to Acts chapter 4. We'll read verses 11 and 12. Acts chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. It says here, and this is breaking into the middle of an explanation by uh, by Peter and making reference to Jesus Christ. He says in verse 11, This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And if we've proven the Bible to be the inspired word of God, and we take that scripture literally, then... The only way to, for mankind to achieve salvation is going to be through Christ and therefore a Christian religion. So of those 41,000 denominations of Christianity, you know, how did we get here? What, what we have to go through? That can be for many of us and has been a daunting task. Mr. Herbert Armstrong used to say that all of them can't be right. And uh, maybe there weren't 41,000 when he said that, but that's uh, that's the reality. They all can't be right. So it's very important for us to understand what Christ himself did and taught and the fundamental truths of the Bible. That process of elimination can be used to narrow down to a very small group. And while we realize we have to make that determination and that process of elimination. It's not my purpose to go through all of those doctrinal proofs today, but to focus on one fundamental area of the living church of God to remind us of its great importance. So this afternoon I'd like to review just how it is, how important it is to observe God's Sabbaths. 
So if you want a title for the sermon, I've just named it, The Importance of Observing God's Sabbath. Sabbaths. So notice I did say plural, multiple Sabbaths beyond the weekly Sabbath, but one would include the holy days as well. So there are five points that I want to focus, uh, to, uh, on which to focus. And the first one simply being that God commands his Sabbaths to be observed. He does tell us what we are to do. I won't turn there, but in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we find there that God sanctified what the weekly Sabbath, the seventh day of the week, at creation. It didn't come just through Israel, but he sanctified it at creation. But let's turn back to Exodus chapter 23. Exodus 23. We'll begin reading in verse 14. Oftentimes on the holy days, we actually turn to Deuteronomy. But it's interesting that here after the weekly Sabbath is made one of the commandments, he does mention these other festival seasons, if you will. Verse 12, I mean, pardon me, verse 14 says, Three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You'll eat it seven days, as I command you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. Then in verse 16, in the Feast of Harvest, the first fruits of your labor which you have sown in the field, and the Feast of Ingathering at the end of the year, when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. So God is here explaining along with the weekly Sabbath. He has said there's going to be three special seasons of the year in which you are to observe and worship me and do certain things. Leviticus 23, in talking about these three seasons, here in Leviticus chapter 3, 23 verses 1 through 4, he points out, The Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feast of the Eternal, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Eternal in all your dwellings. And these are the feasts of the Eternal, holy convocations which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. And so we will not go through the remainder of the chapter, but here God spells out very distinctly, very clearly, exactly when God is, when we are to worship our God. He gives us very clear instructions that He's made, He made this for, for us and do a certain way at a certain time. And then back in Exodus 31, a scripture that it's important for us to know, and I'm sure most of us know exactly where I'm headed here. Exodus chapter 31, verse 12. And the Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Eternal who sanctifies you. You shall keep the Sabbath. Therefore, it is holy to you. 
And everyone who profanes it shall be surely put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. So speaking especially about the weekly Sabbath, but clearly from what we see in Leviticus 23, where he combines the weekly Sabbath along with the holy days, that they are all to be observed very carefully. And over in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, he points out this sign that we are God's people was something that was made for us. And I won't turn there, but Mark chapter 2, verse 27, Christ says that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That the Sabbath is was to be and is to be both a physical and a spiritual benefit to his people. Physical because we are commanded to rest. And those of us that work six days a week, go through the things, the challenges that we face, uh, look forward to Friday evening sunset. And we have a, a day on uh, what we call Friday, which we call the preparation day to get ready to rest. I think that's, that's not always hard to do as far as getting ready to rest. You look forward to that. We have to stop work. Sometimes we make it uh, hard to stop work with our, our world around us and our, our vocations. But God says it is a, a time that was made for our benefit. And if we don't observe that, then we don't get any physical benefit, and we certainly would not receive any physical benefit. But God explains very clearly here in these scriptures that we rehearsed here that these days are commanded. God expects us to keep his weekly Sabbath, and he expects us to keep the annual holy days that are part of his His word and that make us who we are, that makes us the people of God, one of the ways that we are identified by him. Now, the second point I want to point out here is that God warned Israel not to adopt any of the pagan practices. Let's go back again over to Exodus chapter 34. We'll we'll look at a couple of scriptures in this regard. In Exodus 34, we'll pick it up in verse 10. And the words here are important, the way it's worded, the way it's opened. He says, he said, behold, I make a covenant. I make an agreement. I make a contract with you. Something that you, that I will do, and then something that you, as my people, are expected to do. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation, and all the people among whom you are, shall see the work of the eternal, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. And in delivering the Israelites out of Egypt, he performed all kinds of awesome miracles, but he also did many other things on the way to the promised land and watching over his people. Then he points out in verse 11, observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite and the Canaanite, the Hittite and the Perizzite, the Hivites and the Jebusites. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. So he's saying, be on guard to not make an alternate covenant that would conflict with the one we're making. Uh, 
Rather, it says, but you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. For you shall worship no other god, for the Eternal, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous or a zealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifice to their gods, and one of them invites you and you eat of his sacrifice. And he talks about the intermarriage, and you take of his daughters for your for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. And you shall make no molded gods for yourselves. So he warns them, don't begin to integrate yourself into the society of the, the nations that are before you. You're only to worship the true God. And then in the remainder, uh, the succeeding verses of this chapter, he again rehearses these three seasons that are to be observed, but not have any vestiges of this idolatrous, these practices that were in the other nations, the, the Gentile nations into which they were going. And get rid of them. And then over in Deuteronomy chapter 12. And the reason I turn there is, This is given, in Exodus 34, this is given to the nation of Israel when they are coming out of captivity and going on their way to the promised land. So it's a forewarning of that, that is, as we know, because of their their sins, ended up being a good number of years later. So in Deuteronomy chapter 12, and here this is a a re-giving of the law and mentioning the statutes and the judgments that God had ordained for Israel, so now that this trip, this 40-year trip through the wilderness has taken place, these things are reiterated. In chapter 12, verse 1, it says, These are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the eternal God of your fathers is giving you to possess in all the days that you live on the earth. Again, you shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess served their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. And you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from the place so that even their names would not be uttered as to what those, the names of the the false gods. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. And then in, later in the chapter, in verse 29, it says, When the eternal your God cuts off from before you the nations which you, should, which you go to dispossess, and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their God's saying, How did these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. Uh, Curiosity uh, is a natural part of our minds. What what are people doing? Why do they do that? And God warns them not to even make inquiry into these things in terms of worshiping him. Verse 31, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the eternal which he hates, they have done to their gods. For they even, they burned even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. 
that in chapter 13, he says, if there points out here that there might be other people who will try to tell you differently than what Moses has told you. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and that the sign or the wonder, in fact, does come to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods. Now that you can see I have some special gift, here's, let me tell you how we should be living. Let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. God says, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet, or dreamer of dreams, for the eternal your God is testing you to know whether you love the eternal your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the eternal your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. Then in the first part of chapter 5, even pointing out that if someone actually does this, brings to can foretell the future or give a, uh, interpret a dream and it comes to pass. He says, that prophet who has encouraged you to stray from these way, this way of life, that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. God was going to get rid of anyone that would bring about what we would today call heresy and encourage them to turn to idolatry. So Israel was told what to do, exactly when to do it. And then they were warned about not mixing those instructions with what would be going on in the nations that they were going to overtake, and God would uh, run them out, be destroyed. But we know that Israel did not follow those instructions very well. So what happened when Israel disobeyed? Let's turn over to 1 Kings chapter 11. First Kings chapter 11, his third point. What happened when Israel did not follow the commands and the instructions that he had given them through Moses? And they got into the promised land. Joshua led them through uh, over the Jordan and into the promised land. And what did they do? Well, we know they began to mix, mix with the people and changed their way of worshiping God to the wrong way. But later on, we find here in 1 Kings chapter 11, uh, what really was a major turning point for for Israel. In 1 Kings chapter 11, we'll turn, start reading in verse 4. This is during the reign of Solomon, the latter part of it. And God had blessed Israel immensely because of David's obedience, David's example, and David's uh, Dedication to what was right. And of course Solomon succeeded him on the throne. Then in verse 4 here it says, For it was so, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned his heart after other gods, because he had made the grave mistake of marrying large number of ladies from other religions, other countries, other ways of life. And his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not loyal to the eternal his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the eternal. 
and did not fully follow the eternal as did his father David. There were still some good things that Solomon had had done and perhaps continued to do, but in the matter of idolatry, he turned away from God. And God showed us in his instructions that there is clearly a connection between the Sabbaths and idolatry. There's an absolute connection to them. And so when Solomon began to, as he got old, he turned away by the influence of his wives. He did evil in the sight of the eternal. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. So if we just look at those verses, we find there are four gods already mentioned, four idols that are mentioned that uh, Solomon was involved in turning away from God too. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. So we don't know how many wives, literally there, but all of them, whatever their religion was, the foreign wives, whatever their religion, whatever their idol was, Solomon took the time and expense to to set up a uh, house for them to to worship their god. Then then, uh, later in the chapter, we hear in uh, verse 11, it says, Therefore the Eternal said to Solomon, Because you have done this, and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. What happens when we don't observe God's Sabbaths? Well, punishment is usually dealt out. And in this case for Israel, was a major rendering rending of the kingdom. And he says, nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father, David. So God was still honoring David's example and David's leadership. And so Solomon benefited from that. He said, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to you, to your son for the sake of my servant, David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So the kingdom was going to be divided. God said because of his idolatry, that God was going to actually uh, separate the tribes of Israel in a major way. So a lot of punishment was to be the result of that disobedience. Of course, we find then in the next uh, later in the chapter, uh, in First Kings chapter eleven, verse twenty-nine, because we find the name Jeroboam. A servant of, of Solomon. We find out who is going to receive that share of the kingdom that's taken from, from the son of Solomon, which Rehoboam. And now it happened at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, met him on the way and he had clothed himself with the new garment and the two were alone in the field. Then Ahijah took off the new garment that was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take heed for yourself, or take for yourself ten pieces. For thus says the Eternal, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon, and will give ten tribes to you. Now, in, in the midst of finding out what was going on, Rehoboam, who succeeded Solomon, was determined to follow Solomon's example 
in, uh, especially in terms of financial matters, and actually make things even harder on the people of Israel, did not respond to any uh, request for reform or consideration, so ten tribes rebel, and we find that Jeroboam is the one who's going to be over that group. So then in, in verse 38 of chapter 11, he points out that after he's been told you're going to have ten tribes of Israel, then it shall be, if you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight to keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build you an enduring house as I built for David and will give Israel to you. So he tells Jeroboam, if you will obey me, then you too can have a kingdom and it will continue. Now, we find in chapter 12, let's turn over to verse 19. After Rehoboam has refused any of the reforms that was requested by these ten tribes in verse 19. So Israel had been in rebellion or has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. They rejected Rehoboam and it came to pass in verse 20. When all Israel heard that Jeroboam had come back because he had been away in, uh, in Egypt, fleeing Solomon, when Solomon sought to kill him after he found out about the prophecy from God about separating the kingdom, they sent for him and called him to the congregation and made him king over all Israel. And there was none who followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah. In verse 25, so Jeroboam, after he is made king over what is we now call, the Bible refers to as the house of Israel, these ten tribes. In verse 25, then Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim and dwelt there. So one of the first things he did was to provide himself a house, and he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, the human reasoning sets in. But how can I maintain what I now have? said in his heart, now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the eternal at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. He was afraid for his own life, thinking that for self-protection that he should change things, as he did in verse 28. Therefore... The king asked advice, made two calves of gold, and said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Too too long of a trek. Too difficult. It's just too inconvenient. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. It's interesting. Those are similar words to what uh, were spoken at Sinai when uh, Aaron built the uh, the calf, made the calf, here is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of Egypt. And so this, this piece of idolatry uh, carried on for quite some time. And then they set up one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. So it's too far to go to Jerusalem, and I'll, actually what I'll do is I'll give you a choice, which one's, whichever is more convenient for you. You have two places to go and worship the God that brought you out of Egypt. So we find in verse, uh, the, uh, so we've got, uh, 
In the next verses, we go down into verse 32. It says, Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah, which was, of course, the holy days being observed in the 7th month. And so he did at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And to Bethel he installed the priest of the high places, which he had made. So he made offerings on the altar which he had made at Bethel on the 15th day of the 8th month, in the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he ordained a feast for the children of Israel and offered sacrifices on the altar and burned incense. Uh, How much difference can one month make? Well, it only makes a difference because God ordained the seventh month. how much difference can it be that we worship on the Sabbath, on the seventh day of the week? It's just one day away to worship on Sunday. Well, it, it said we all have another saying that uh, close only counts in horseshoes and grenades. Uh, maybe not even in horseshoes. You have to be pretty close to get a point. <laughs> you know, you get beyond that width of the, uh, of the horseshoe itself, even that doesn't count. Well, eighth month doesn't count. The first day of the week, if you will, doesn't count, not in God's eyes, because it's not following his instructions. In chapter 13 of 1 Kings, in the early part of the chapter, Jeroboam is given a dire warning because of what he has brought on Israel in causing them to keep separate feasts, Worship idols, and again, those feasts and, and the idolatry are integrated. They're uh, connected. They go hand in hand in doing the wrong things. And we find in First Kings chapter 13, the latter part of it, verses 33 and 34, we find a really important phrase. And after this event, Jeroboam did not turn away from his evil way, but again, he made priests from every class of people for the high places. He, he didn't care about qualifications. He simply wanted people who would agree with him, who would espouse whatever instruction he gave them, whatever was in his heart. And whoever wished, he consecrated him. In other words, I, you can just volunteer to be his priest because there are going to be lots of rewards for that. He consecrated him, and he became one of the priests of the high places. And this thing was the sin of the house of Jeroboam. Now, in the old King James, he says, and this became a sin. God especially pointing out what Jeroboam had led Israel, the ten tribes, the northern house of Israel, into was a sin. It was a major, major problem. And I won't, I won't rehearse all of it, but in terms of what successively happened from generation to generation, I'll, I'll mention a couple of them over in 1 Kings chapter 15, in verses 25 and 26, first. It says, Now Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel, in the second year of Asa, king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel two years. And he did evil in the sight of the Eternal, and walked in the way of his father, Jeroboam the son of Nebat, and in his sin by which he had made Israel sin. So God was clearly focusing on what Jeroboam had led Israel into doing. 
that this was a major problem, and Nadab, his son, follows that example. But he had also warned Jeroboam, look, because of what you've done, uh, you're not going to have a kingdom. This, your, your lineage won't last. So we find in verses, uh, verse 27, then Basha, the son of Ahijah of the house of Issachar, conspired against him. Not, not a, a descendant or a son of Jeroboam, but someone else conspired against Nadab, and Baasha killed him at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, while Nadab and all Israel laid siege to Gibbethon. So the kingship, the dynasty for Jeroboam was short-lived. We find then in verse 29, and when it was so, when he became king, that is, uh, Baasha, that he killed all the house of Jeroboam. He did not leave to Jeroboam anyone that breathed until he had destroyed him according to the word of the eternal, which he had spoken by his servant Ahijah, the Shalonite. That, that dynasty was over. And because, why? Verse 30, because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he had sinned, by which he had made Israel sin. God knew that this change this new festival season, this new, these new idols were going to be a major problem for Israel. And Jeroboam was held accountable for that. And because of his provocation with which he had provoked the eternal God of Israel to anger. God was very angry because of what Israel was doing and what Jeroboam had brought on that, that particular nation at that time. And so we find in verse 34, Talking about Baasha, it says, He did evil in the sight of the Eternal and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin by which he had made Israel sin. So king after king, generation after generation, Israel continued to worship these idols and to celebrate wrong Sabbaths away from that. Now, the house of Israel never returned to worshiping God. Never in their, their history. Due to their idolatry and profaning the Sabbaths, and of course, and along with other resulting sins, over two century, centuries later, they're taken captive by Assyria in 721 B.C., and they ceased to be a nation, if you will, a free nation, and lost, for the most part, from open view in history. And if you want to extend that just a bit, besides going into captivity after two-plus centuries, as they migrated out of there across the Caspian area in the northwest Europe, we now come down to 2019. Most of those peoples really still have no idea who they are. Just a few of us understand that. They lost sight of God, and so if you will, not just for 200 years, a little over, but now for about three millennia, the people of Israel, the descendants of Israel, don't know who they are. And those of us that do know are trying to warn them accordingly. Now, I mentioned in the Bible study this past Wednesday, let's turn over to Hosea chapter 8. Hosea chapter 8, 
We'll pick it up in verse 11. It says, Because Ephraim made many altars for sin, they have become for him altars for sinning. And Ephraim, as I mentioned in the Bible study, was the the predominant tribe of Israel. That they had great influence over them. And he tells, just in referring to Ephraim, God is actually talking to the house of Israel. They have become for him altars for sinning. I have written for him, really Israel, not just the one tribe, the great things of my law. But they were considered a strange thing. Now, Hosea was writing toward the end of the house, before the house of Israel went into captivity. So, again, the better part of two centuries. His prophet, as a prophet, it appears he could have been warning Israel for upwards of 50 years, maybe even a little more. And you read that account from chapter to chapter that many of them are similar warnings, similar examples that, in my mind, at least I have no doubt that over time, Hosea was simply giving a new warning, a different, maybe a different part of the country or a different time, worded a slightly different way. But he says they were considered a strange thing. That is, should not be hard to understand. For over 200 years, Israelites, the house of Israel, had been worshiping the wrong gods, been worshiping idols. How much history do you and I know about 200 years ago? And so religion, if it's been the better part of three millennia since Israel understood God's law because they're worshiping the wrong God. I don't think, pardon the phrase, but... I don't think it's a strange thing to realize that the law of God to them is a strange thing. Now, they don't understand, you know, it's this strange habit we have of eating unleavened bread for seven days. That's strange to them. That's a little bit unusual, not not altogether unknown, but keeping the Sabbath is different. And yet they don't think anything about celebrating with rabbits on Easter and we think that's sort of strange. <laughs> uh, why would you uh, have all these accoutrements of Christmas and Easter? And it's all normal because they've been doing it for a long, long time. Really not hard to understand why they look at God's law and God's way of life as strange. Because it's just not part of their lives. They've not grown up that way. And the only reason you and I understand what really is strange and what really makes sense is because God has opened our minds to understand his way of life. He made it very special to us. And so, in reality, Israel is experiencing the punishment of God because they have disobeyed and kept the wrong Sabbaths and worshipped the wrong gods. How does he view that? You know, we know he punished them. He's punishing us. But how does God view this? Point number four, if you will. What is God's response over in Ezekiel chapter 20? In Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12, it says, Moreover, I also gave my Sabbaths 
to be a sign between them and me, that they might know that I am the Eternal who sanctifies them. Again, I'll make reference back to one of the scriptures in Hosea that we discussed Wednesday, where those that are worshiping the wrong God, the wrong Christ, say, I know you. Why are you doing this to us? And God says, no, I don't know you. You don't know me either. How do we know that we know God? What's John tell us? Because we keep his commandments. That's how we know. Not because of all of the other trappings of the Protestant world, if you will. Because we obey God, that they might be know, they might know that I am the eternal who sanctifies them. We are aware that God has set us apart because we are obeying Him. And we're keeping His Sabbaths, the weekly Sabbath and the annual Sabbaths. And yet the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes. They despised my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they greatly defiled my Sabbaths. Then I said I would pour out my fury on them in the wilderness to consume them. And God is in the process of bringing Israel to bear and to suffer from their their conduct. And people turn to God. They think they're turning to God. And they pray. And they have their... Their methods for worshiping God. He says here in verse 3 of chapter 20, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the eternal God, Have you come to inquire of me? As I live, says the Lord God, I will not be inquired of you. I will not listen to your request. I will not listen to your worship. Now, that's not to say that God does not have mercy on people at any given time. He, he is a God of mercy. He can choose to be merciful to whomever he wants. But in general, he does not hear the prayers of God's, of the, those that worship the wrong God. Over in Amos chapter 5, Amos chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, Verse 21 of Amos chapter 5, I hate, I despise your feast days. Now, we have, we talk about, well, we would mention that a uh, telecast was, was uh, prepared by Mr. Weston this week about the problem with Christmas. We have a booklet on it. And some people think, well, it, uh, in the world, that, that, that's no big deal. But what does God say this here about, about that and worship on, on these, those feast days? Looking at what it says here in verse 21, it says, I hate, I despise your feast days. God says those days are of an abomination to him. And I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Don't enjoy them. And though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. We don't do those today, and neither does any other Christian religion for the most part that I know of. But whatever their offerings are, God 
does not regard them. Nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Then in verse 27, Therefore I will send you into captivity beyond Damascus, says the Eternal, whose name is the God of hosts. Israel will again go into captivity because of worshiping the wrong gods. Over in Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Isaiah 5, verse 11. says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink. So basically they're going to spend an entire day with their minds wiped out. And who then continue until night. Till wine inflames them. Spend their day loaded up with alcohol, pointing out then the harp and the strings, the tambourine and the flute, and wine are in their feast. Now, now we, we also have been known to enjoy wine on our feast days. That's not what God is talking about. It's not just wine. But they do not regard the work of the eternal, nor consider the operation of his hands. He's talking about a time of great excess. The kinds of things we see in the typical national and international holidays. Why God hates those days. We use music, of course. We have song service. We use music to, to worship God. They use the wrong music. God is here referring to this time of great excess, the decadence. The immorality, in our time we see this in New Year's Eve celebrations. We see it in what was once, you know, called, I guess, Saturnalia. We also see it in Mardi Gras and in Carnival. You know, it's called Carnival in several other countries. And some of you have perhaps uh, on TV or maybe even lived nearby, uh, happened to had occasion to work for some people who lived in Baton Rouge. And some of you are from Louisiana. And you understand, you've seen the kinds of behavior that, go, that goes on when Mardi Gras is celebrated. It's one special time to just have a blowout before they deny themselves somewhat. And the kind of decadence that God says he sees in these days, these, this, their, the rituals in which they indulge, that he hates those things because they produce a wrong kind of conduct. In, So in Malachi, chapter 2, Malachi, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and now, O priests... This commandment is for you if you will not hear. And if you will not take it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Eternal of hosts, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already because you do not take it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your descendants and spread refuse on your faces. 
the refuse of your solemn feast because they're kept in the wrong manner, the wrong time, the wrong beliefs, and one will take you away with it. So this refuse, the old King James uses a, a, a much more, uh, I guess, difficult word, you know, that we don't want. He says here, I will spread refuse on your faces. The dung of the wrong way of life. So what, what's God's response? The holy days are important to him. And keeping the wrong days are a major, major problem. I'll refer to a couple of sections in our booklet on God's master plan, the holy days, written by Dr. Meredith. He says here on verse 10, he says, From our first acceptance of Christ as Savior to the picturing of his second coming all the way until the last great day, picturing the time when all human beings will finally have a real opportunity for salvation, these God-given, God-inspired festivals picture the real plan of God, the pagan religious festivals that Satan has foisted off on a deceived humanity, are indeed a cheap substitute. For in reality, they picture a false God, a false Christ, and lead to the acceptance of a false gospel, which directly contradicts the true message that Christ and the apostles preached. As you will see in this booklet, God's holy days are far more than just days in which we cease from our normal work. They are far more than mere civil holidays. Then on the last part of of, uh, the paragraph in page 11, it says, Remember, understanding and observing these festivals helps us keep in mind the great master plan of our Creator, whereby He intends to enlighten and ultimately to save the vast majority of mankind. So the holy days, the Sabbaths that God commanded and ordained, help keep us tied to the true God. That's how important they are. We understand God's way of life because of the things we do. Our way of life, our holy days, the holy days that we observe. The Bible tells us that when we obey, He gives us understanding. If we stop obeying, as Israel did, house of Israel, you lose understanding. People forget God's way of life because God's Spirit is no longer working with them. He does not hear their celebrations. He does not, He disdains their prayers because of what they are doing. And we understand this way of life because we are keeping them. God's Sabbaths are critically important. To me, it's inconceivable that God would condemn Jeroboam's actions as He did and the sin that He introduced into Israel allowing them even to go into captivity. And then the very same God, because Christ was the God of the Old Testament, and then when he became a man in the flesh, God in the flesh, that he would say, "Uh, it's no big deal. The Sabbath doesn't really matter. Uh, It doesn't make any sense whatsoever that the attitude of keeping these days would turn into, in fact, not be a real issue, and that he would say no problem to the carnal and idolatrous practices of today. I think he would make it very clear 
in his word. He wouldn't use what we sometimes call difficult scriptures to sort of hide the fact that it's changed. No, he wouldn't do that. Let's think about circumcision. I mean, it was a big deal in the Old Testament. It was a sign of the covenant with Abraham. And Israel had to practice that or they couldn't celebrate the Passover. It was a big deal. And once he changed it, he said, what matters now is baptism. And there's been no, no doubt about that today on a spiritual basis. The baptism is what God commands, not circumcision, to be part of his family. If he was going to eliminate the command to observe the Sabbaths, I think he would have made that clear beyond any doubt. So the last point then is that God will correct this when Christ returns and sets up his kingdom. He gave a command that we keep these Sabbaths. He punished Israel when they didn't. He divided the nation. And down through history, they lost their identity to even knowing who they are. And, of course, we know that he was view of them, as we just discussed. Let's turn over to Isaiah chapter 66. A couple of scriptures in closing. Isaiah chapter 66, verses 18 and also verse 23. Verse 18 of Isaiah 66. For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall be that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. Verse 23. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another... And from one Sabbath to another, all flesh will come to worship before me, says the Eternal. The Sabbaths are going to continue into God's kingdom. It's required of us now, and it will be that way throughout mankind's existence. In Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14, just the one verse here, verse 16. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Eternal of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. We know there are, a multi, there are multiple references in the New Testament pointing out that they, the feast days were observed by the Christians long after Christ had returned to heaven. These holy days that we are about to observe, some we've observed already earlier this year, and some that are yet very near in our future, all of these, these verses should be enough to tell us that the holy days are to be celebrated, even as we celebrate celebrated Passover, Unleavened bread and the day of Pentecost, which has the primary meetings have come to pass already, that these days ahead of us celebrate something that is yet to occur. A key component in being taught to obey God and become like Him. He tells us when and exactly how we are to worship Him on the weekly Sabbath and on the holy days. They're an integral part of the correct and true right way of life. There are I'd put it this way. (laughs) 
there are about 40,999 wrong ways to do it. There's only one way. God's way, keeping his law, keeping his Sabbaths. Help us understand that we are, in fact, and will continue to be God's people.